0: alive and kicking. All news Talk.
1: Yes, you can email the show, aliveandkicking at newstalk.com, or you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, I chat to journalist Liz Hoggard, who ate portion sizes from the 70s, to find out how supersized we've really become with our food. And I also speak to Fiona Toomey on how seeking the solace of others who knew what she was going through after suicide led her to set up the peer support charity HUG. And in this interview, I will, of course, have a trigger warning and all of the support numbers given out. But I recorded the interview with Fiona during the week and it's a conversation that I will never forget. And of course, there are some of you listening who will have to decide that listening to it is not for you, for your own safety, and I 100% respect that. But for other of you who might think, oh no, that's a heavy and dark topic, it is. But it is one that we need to take out of stigma and shame and talk about. And Fiona is an incredible speaker who does that so well. I am so grateful to her for sharing her story with me. And I think any of you who listen to it will gain a huge amount from it. The charity is seeking volunteers who have experienced suicide and feel they might be able to give back and help others in their healing. And you'll find out more about that later in the show. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, it's actually been a bit of a mad week. I told you last week that I was on Mary Ryan's podcast, Empowering Women, and she was asking me that question of what's next. And I told her about my plans to launch a business called Nourish Yourself with an online course. And so... This week, ahead of the podcast episode going live on Friday, I just went hell for leather, setting up a website, working through an online course. So I have been at the laptop night and day, mixed in with family stuff, other life commitments. And I feel a little at the moment now, like I've been put through a washing machine. The website is up, it's simple, but it's there. And I'm working my way through an online course. And one of the main reasons... I'm telling you about all this now is because it has been something I've had in my peripheral vision for a while now and I have been clearing other tasks out of the way first, which I do think is necessary. There was a friend of mine said to me once, When we think about goals that we have, we should think of them like kites flying in the sky. And sometimes to pull the big ones in, you have to pull the little ones that are in the front and in the way in first. Otherwise, they all end up with a tangle. So I guess that's what I was doing, pulling a few little kites in out of the way. But what I learned this week was that if you have a really big project in mind and you're waiting to be ready, just start just start. Because once I started, stuff has been flying from me and I've really been enjoying myself. And of course, asking myself, why didn't I start this ages ago? So I'm going to take my time with it and keep going. I'm not sure what I'm doing at the minute. It feels like I'm half writing a book and an online course, but I'm typing like a mad yoke and I will keep you posted. And I found during those mad, frazzled, adult mind times that if I stepped away, I went to the garden, or I went to the beach with my daughter, and we got bashed about by the waves, and it brought me back. We need that grounding. I made sure I didn't go straight from there to the couch and Netflix or a flick through my phone. So that is another pearl I will impart to you. You can email the show Alive and Kicking at Newstalk.com. So, as you know, I usually try to avoid any talk of diet culture or restricting ourselves because I don't. Believe it leads to healthy behaviours in the long run. But I do think it's important that we look at the way we eat and how we eat. And there was an article in the Telegraph newspaper this week, they discussed it on the breakfast show here on News Talk. And it really got me thinking, and it came down to portion control. The headline of the article read, Eating like it's the 1970s showed me the madness of our modern diet. It was written by freelance feature writer Liz Hoggart, who joins me on the line now. Hello, Liz. How are you? Very well, thank you. So where did this idea come from for this, for this feature?
0: Well, I have to credit my editor on the Telegraph Health Editor, who'd been pondering it for a while, we're the same generation, the same vintage, we you know, grew up uh, born in the 60s and sort of had our teenage years in the 70s. And she asked me if I remembered what sort of portion sizes we had back then because she'd been thinking our plate sizes, and our glasses, everything are huge in comparison. And for those of us who are slightly emotional overeaters or have difficulty you know, losing weight, um, and are puzzled because we don't eat, think we eat that much, she felt it might be the solution. And, and like you, I'd rather be fit than super thin. It's not about that at all. But I sort of laughed at first because we had quite... A, you know, we all laugh about the 1970s diet because we remember Angel Delight and toasted sandwiches and, you know, Snicker bars and all the rest of it. Um, but actually, looking back, the food... But the portion sizes that we had were much more defined. Our parents were, you know, post-war babies and we just didn't have the same eating opportunities. The larder was metaphorically locked after a meal. And also we didn't have Uber, you know, biking stuff to us 24 hours a day.
1: And I think people understand that wine glasses have got bigger. We can kind of now drink out of massive big fish bowls. But I don't think people know that our dinner plates have actually got bigger.
0: Yeah, looking at the size of the sort of 1950s, 1960s dinner plate, uh, which, of course, that's the other thing. Our parents would probably not have had new. You know, they would have inherited from their grand, well, from our grandparents, their parents. It was about um, 22 centimetres, and then an average plate now is probably about 28. And part of the confusion is, you know, we have those lovely sort of serving plates because of all this tablescaping. So you might have a large plate and then a bowl on it and then another bowl, you know, Whereas obviously when we were back in the 70s, there was one plate and very often the side plate um, might almost have been your your main plate. And I, when I, one um, nutrition expert I spoke to said she'd been hosting a Ukrainian family recently and they didn't want to use her plates. They found them absolutely huge. They preferred the comfort of having a smaller side plate.
1: And I did that with my kids. So that kind of toddler portion plate, I kept that. I mean, they're now nine and 12. Yeah. So they do have a, an adult dinner plate now. But I kept that far longer, perhaps, I thought, because I, I, I didn't want to start giving them too much. But I forgot about that for myself. I don't think we yeah. think this way. And, and, and as I said at the outset, you know, of course, there's going to be times where we're going to eat a big bowl of pasta or we're going to, you know, overeat. And, you know, that that's fine. You know, emotional eating is very much a part of our lives. We're going to go out, we're going to have a big dinner out in a restaurant and we're going to enjoy it. And I don't want people to ever feel guilty about that. But as you say, if we have lost the sense of what a true portion is, that is going to have an impact. And it's just about bringing a bit of awareness there. Well, yes. I mean, one of the um,
0: obesity experts I've been talking to for another piece, actually, he said we have this um, feast or feast culture now, you know, whereas it was the hunter-gatherer thing, that when you were eight, you were sort of, when you were hungry, you were motivated to search out food. We have so many feasting opportunities now. It's part of the way we socialise. So, you know, you might meet for afternoon tea, then there might be canapes, pre-drinks, You know, it's it's a lovely thing to do, but that notion of it being special occasion, which was very much something in the 1970s, you know, we barely went to restaurants, that has changed and we see it as our our right to a certain extent. And even things that are cost effective because, you know, we have to be aware that everyone's having a tough time at the moment. The sort of bottomless brunch, which sounds like generosity, but is it really when you're eating far more than you need? And also no one can ever eat or drink as much as, as the price anyway.
1: And that was something they were talking about on the breakfast show here on News Talk. And Shane Coleman said, you know, you might have gone out in the 70s for a meal for a very special occasion. So a handful of times a year. But now we eat out for all meals. You know, we can eat out for breakfast, lunch, dinner. As you say, there's afternoon teas. There's all kinds of wonderful ways in which we can eat out. And how much of this kind of can we put at restaurants and the portions that they give out? Because I hate to see plates go back full of food that's all just going to get scraped and wasted into the bin. And surely it would be more cost effective for restaurants to have more stringent control on their portions. This yes, is interesting, isn't it? Because at
0: first you think, oh, they're you know, it's a generous restaurant. They're giving me so much food for my money it's because they can then charge more. I mean, I you know, we've all noticed these days if you go out for a meal and it's partly you know it's very difficult to to find staff and employ them in the restaurant business but you you know it's quite hard to get away with a main course that doesn't cost 22 pounds now really and you know i i think i would prefer to pay less and have a a smaller portion and i think um the other thing about a food is a lot of it was pre-plated up, probably because now we have much more liberal parenting and meal times are not quite <laughs> the feudal situation we used to have where, you know, you weren't even allowed to watch television at the same time as eating. But a lot of it was, uh, was pre-plated. And so my grandmother would say, um, you know, make up the angel delight in individual glasses and set them in her larder. And that's what you got. You didn't have a chance to go back to the bowl and help yourself to another so there were quite a lot of psychological things going on there. And it was also because, our, you know, our parents and grandparents didn't have access to credit. Credit cards have changed our lives. We can pay for things before we actually have the money. And, you know, they really didn't.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I was watching a documentary um, recently. It was on Amazon Prime and it was a photographer who had become sort of obsessed with this, rich mentality we have and this this abundant lifestyle we had and she went all around LA photographing rich families and and years on she went back to meet these these children and when she spoke about how we have changed our ideals, that we used to have this ideal of, you know, working for what you had and being happy with what you've got has completely changed to this manifest the life of your dreams and spend way above your means to to fund that. And and, and sometimes when you look at that, it it can be surprising. Sometimes we just are so caught up in the, the image of it all that we forget how much of a societal shift that has been. And you had a look at the figures behind this, there was a study in 2013 and portion sizes in the UK have soared over the past 20 or 30 years. What were the results of what you found?
0: I think they found that things like ready-made curry meals and things like that had increased dramatically and packets of crisps and biscuits And, I mean, obviously we're seeing a bit of shrinkflation at the moment because a manufacturer is sometimes doing smaller amounts of packaging in order to, to, you know, charge the same price. But I think on the whole, we are out of touch with what a healthy portion is. I mean, they were saying that something like a 200 gram chocolate bar, that actually should be eight portions for eight people, which you you don't always think. And even though those extra large bags of, of crisps, you know, you tend to think, particularly if you live on your own, oh, well, that's my portion whereas obviously what used to happen in the old days is they'd be tipped into a little bowl perhaps just one tiny small packet of crisps so I think um, a lot of the packaging is is misleading we also don't um, bother to measure out properly you know we're all very busy sort of frantic people and the experts were advising you to use a scoop or a spoon or a sort of little measuring or even your hand for measuring because what happens is we tip and things like breakfast cereal I think you're supposed to have 30 grams every day. And of course, we it turns out we have more than 70 or 80 a day. And I think it's that regularity. It's the problem, as you say, one blowout every so often. Nothing wrong with that, but we're very good for us. It's just that it it's sort of what they call portion creep. And we start to assume it's our right to have that.
1: Yeah. And if ready meals have expanded by 50%, as has the number of crisps in a bag and a a plain bagel has jumped 24% in size in two decades. Biscuits were up 17%. That is all going to have a a knock-on effect. You know, these are things that are happening without us even noticing. You also had a look, which I thought was interesting, at the vegan diet and there has been a huge increase in the consumption of nut butters and avocados And, and we've sort of lost the portion suggestions for the amount of that in our diet?
0: That notion that the vegan diet is automatically healthy. I mean, basically move more and eat more plants has always been the great driver. And I I really believe in that. But if you look at what makes up some of these, you know, um, vegan meals, particularly the sort of fake burgers and things like that, it really isn't necessarily a particularly healthy Size of things, and so I think you know, even though we we think we're having quinoa and kale, and we're all marvelous, we are slightly out of control with these new healthy foods as well.
1: That's interesting. I spoke to a dietitian recently, just sort of anecdotally, and she was saying a lot of the health conscious people will often be adding a lot more of these things, and it's a very positive thing to add seeds, nut butters, avocado, all of these things. Fat, in fact, you know, it got such a bad rap over the years, it is an essential part of a healthy diet. And to be having fat-free yeah. means you're bringing in a whole load of other things that you perhaps don't need in your in your diet. So no one wants to demonise fat anymore, but there has to be a balance. So how did you feel eating like you were in the 70s, using the smaller plate, the smaller serving? Did you feel like you were sacrificing? I mean, I've the a controlled portion plate, which you, know, you can buy quite
0: easily, and is very much like your your child toddler plate. I found that really helpful actually, and they're they're quite colourful and it's it sort of you fit it into the triangle on on the plate. But what did shock me particularly was was the carbohydrates because you know you can have I think fifty grams of rice, seventy grams of pasta when it's been when obviously when it's cooked it takes up more space, but it's not very much. And I realised that I would probably have been helping myself to a much larger bowl of that. At first, I did feel a little bit like, oh, God, you know, is there anything else to do this evening? Because I realized how much, if you live alone, how much sort of, you know, looking forward to the next meal is is part of your project. But I did occasionally go to bed a bit early because I was fed up. But I learned to sort of fill up the plate with more veg. And I learned to sort of structure, you know, what I was going to eat. And, and, you know, things like there are little tricks like um, the amount of cheese you're supposed to have a day, which was my great shocker you know, it's no more than a matchbox size, but if you grate it, it takes up more space. And, you know, there's quite a lot of ways that you can encourage yourself to still feel full because the point is if you don't feel full, then you won't stick to it anyway. You know, it has to be fun and it has to be a pleasure for you. And I think home cooking, you know, and that's very much dependent on people having time, but that is much more helpful and you know what's going in your food.
1: Yeah, and, you know, again... I don't want people to start weighing things or feeling guilty about food because there should always be a healthy relationship with food in your body and you should honour your own hunger signals. But I just Mm. think it's an important discussion about the way we eat and how it has shifted. And as you say, you can Uber something to your door within seconds. There are 24-hour supermarkets and it's very different now to how it was in the 70s. Well, Liz Hoggard, freelance feature writer, For the Telegraph newspaper, thank you so much for coming on. That's all right. Thank you very much. Coming up after the break, the suicide charity seeking volunteers who know what it's like to lose people this way. Alive and Kicking on News Talk. You're welcome back to Alive and Kicking. Now, it's important I give a trigger warning here. We will be talking about suicide in this interview and I will give out helpline numbers for anyone affected by suicide and it will also be in the show notes that accompany the podcast. As we know, there are many who die by suicide every year, leaving behind bereft loved ones. Fiona Toomey set up HUG, which stands for Healing Untold Grief Groups, following the death of her 11-year-old daughter Millie in 2016 and she joins me in studio now. Fiona, you're very welcome.
2: Well, thank you very much and lovely to meet you. Can you tell us a little bit about Millie? Millie. Millie was literally a bundle of energy. I mean, people say that about their children, but Millie didn't stand still. She and her sister were um, known by everybody wherever we went. and We were introduced as their parents. It never went the other way around. <laughs> That's the type of child that she was. So if it wasn't putting on a show or bringing kids back to our house or making up a play or jumping off a diving board or creating some sort of scenario that involved half the neighbourhood. That was Millie. She was great.
1: And I was obviously doing some reading ahead of this interview. I saw her beautiful picture. What a a beautiful girl. Um, Stunning eyes. And I was reading that she was fluent in two languages by 11, which really knocked me over.
2: Well, she just had that gift. She was very quick. You know, she was always very quick at picking things up and she wanted to fit in. So she had a great ear, good ear for music, good ear for languages. So she picked it up. You know, you're living in, we lived in Switzerland for many years. So she picked up German and Swiss German, which I never picked up. So, but she did. So she was able to converse with all of the neighborhood kids. And of course, English being the language that was used with all the international kids. So she was was sort of like the UN and she was very much part of the UN over there
1: and of course when you put your name into google the charity comes up but so does the interview yourself and your husband Tim gave on the late late show following her death um that must have been really really tough to bring your pain to the public
2: yeah I, we thought long and hard about it because um what we didn't want is i mean there is when you when around grief and tragedy i mean obviously there is you, you can get a lot of bandwidth from people who are what I call them is a bit grief ghoulish and people, you know, want to hear you know the awful story. And that's what you are, the awful story. So we were very keen that if we did it, we did it with a purpose. It wasn't just to talk about what we had been through, but it was to talk about perhaps what would help in practical terms and literally what could potentially save a life you know, things that we didn't know about that, you know, unfortunately you learn after the fact. So that was really important. You know, even if we got one message out that would help one person, cliched as it sounds, that's what we wanted.
1: And I think that's a really important conversation to have because especially in the age now where people are starting to film and share accidents or assaults that they see on the street and share them, or as you say, that grief, ghoulish, like when something happens In the media there was a story in in recent years and I say story knowing that it's somebody's life but it was of the death of a mother and, and her children and she was obviously in a very dark place but they were filming and taking photographs of the husband arriving back to the house for the first time and I don't think we have a right to view that and I don't understand why we would need to view that.
2: Yeah, well, you know, bad news probably sells better than good news. So, you know, there is that in the media. And unfortunately, we are all guilty of looking at, you know, the awful things that happen in this world. People are drawn to it, perhaps. And I think for many reasons, maybe on the there's the purient, you know, unpleasant side of it. But there's also the other side of it of, you know, oh, I would hate that to happen to me. And, you know, one thing that kind of stuck with us was Millie was always described as, you know, beautiful Millie. Of course she was. But the fact that she was a beautiful looking child is irrelevant, you know. But it, it's something that kind of leads the story that you we used to kind of say, you know, it's not that she was beautiful, Millie. It's that she was, you know, a child who died tragically. And unfortunately, you know, she's not the only one. So there were many things that we kind of picked up on. You know, it, you're being very vulnerable and you're trying to hold it together to try and get a message out. But we knew that we had succeeded, if that's the right word, because of people who got back in touch with us, people who felt enabled to have a conversation with their own you know, family members and children about that very difficult world. Are you thinking you know, of dying? Are you thinking of killing yourself? Which people felt very unable to have and still do when the job's not done. But if you even open that door and say to people it's safe, to have that conversation and it's okay and you can literally be saving somebody's life you know that's a gift to be able to give to somebody
1: And it is quite jarring isn't it when I call Millie beautiful it's that innocence of of childhood that you see shining through and yet for dark thoughts to reside within the innocence of childhood is something we can't necessarily make sense of but as you say we, we need to because it happens and we need to be there to have the conversations and give the support. Yeah,
2: absolutely. I mean, there's there, you know, none of us know what's going on in anybody else's mind, regardless of age or creed or relationship. None of us do. You know, we're not mind readers. We're not experts and people die by suicide. It happens. We know this. And I think the idea of a zero suicide society is a wonderful thought, but I think it's it's possibly you know impossible. However, if people are better informed about what they can do in practical terms when they are worried about somebody or when they think that somebody might be at risk, there are very simple things that they can do. And there is an awful lot of free education that's out there. And these are things that, you know, are within people's grasp. They're not difficult. They're not, there's no barriers to getting this. I mean, the HSE run... Hundreds of courses called Safe Talk around the country. You can do those. It takes a couple of hours of your time. You know, that will enable you to have those difficult conversations, to open that door if you're afraid. There are lots of other ones online that take 20 minutes, you know. And again, none of us are experts, but if you have a little bit of, I suppose, ballast around these words and understanding and know you are not going to cause any harm, but you are potentially allowing somebody A sense of exhale and relief to say, you know, actually, I do need a bit of help. I'm in trouble here. And then you can take the next steps instead of perhaps what we might do, which is panic and go, how am I going to fix this? You know, what am I going to do? And it's not possible for you to fix it. But it is possible for you to enable somebody to say, I'm open to getting help. Or let's go together on this journey and see how can we help you in this situation
1: And what would have made a difference because it sounded like yourself and and, and your husband and and Millie's sister were aware of what was going on and and really did everything in your power. You had reached out for for supports, and and were were open about it in the house.
2: Yeah, we were. Uh, We didn't know about things like safe talk. We didn't know how to have that conversation. You know, yes, we had conversations, but really from a place of parental panic on the inside, which, you know, you of course, you know what happened. Uh you don't nobody knows the system when you have to go and access the system and the system, you know, is unfortunately overburdened and there's many gaps and that has not changed in the time since Millie died. The pathways to getting help are the same and there are some excellent people within the system, but it's still not twenty four seven, it's still not seven days a week, it's still not outside nine to five. So there are glaring and massive gaps which do need to be addressed.
1: And when you sit down with your coffee and go through the papers or turn on the news and and you hear the CAMS report nearly 10 years on that there are still children slipping through the cracks and that there are still massive wait times, do you have to separate yourself out of that anger or does that
2: bring it back up for you? It's never that Far below the surface, because how could it be? I mean, the CAMS reports are absolutely damning and devastating because people sort of say, well, you know, what's the fix? There isn't an easy fix. I mean, that's absolutely true. There is no easy fix to it. However, it is not something, to my mind, that is front and centre. You know, it's way down the pecking order. You know, it's not given equal status to physical health. And until it does, this will remain And you're talking about thousands of children and it can be anybody's child, you know, anybody's child. There's no set, you know, uh, sector of the of community or of the society that this is labelled for. And the trauma that a lot of parents go through in worrying about what do I do next? Where do I go? If that was on the on the physical side of health, it would be an absolute national outcry.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with you. And the fact that 6% of the overall health budget is spent on mental health, not just for children, but for everybody, really speaks volumes and I
2: think is a real indictment. I'm glad you said that. I'm really glad you said that because you have to put the percentage of it. You know, people say, well, what percentage of, you know, of our GDP is spent on mental health? It's tiny, 6%. Should be up near 15%. So actually the amount of money we're spending on our mental health, is decreasing over the years. So where there's talk about X amount, there's never been more money put into mental health, that may be true, but we're still at 6%. Yeah,
1: and we have a crisis model of care. So when things get to breaking point, you go to A&E. That's overrun, rather than trying to get in with early intervention and support and and helping people along that way. And to move to your own healing and your your own journey. I'm sure there's no destination point with that necessarily. But I would imagine there's a lot of feelings that come up of, of guilt or and I'm not saying this should be, but what did I do? What could I have done? And that must be very difficult to navigate. Grief on its own is very difficult, but grief after suicide must be in a whole other realm.
2: Uh, there are grief after suicide is different. And scientifically, we know it's different. It's not just the words. I mean, there there is trauma for a lot of, you know, um, sudden deaths. There's trauma around it. Of course there is. And it shares, you know, a lot of emotions with many other types of bereavement. But I think when it comes to suicide, it has to be remembered that there are certain elements that are very distinct. For example, when somebody dies by suicide, you re-examine their life in a very forensic way. So, people may be looking back at nearly every moment of how that person lived. You might be re-examining photographs. Were they really happy? What was going on at that stage? You may be re-examining, you know events that went on. So you may be sort of rethinking the entire narrative of your relationship with somebody. That doesn't happen in another uh, in other types of death or in other types of even sudden bereavements. You spoke about the guilt. I think that guilt remains with people who have been impacted by a suicide loss and it's not that there's a place for it, I think it's just unfortunately one of the passengers of the grief because the woulda, coulda, shoulda will always remain even though you can separate yourself and say well in practical terms, what could I have done? You're not omnipresent, If the best minds in the world can't prevent every suicide from happening, how can a mere mortal? So you have to try and process and separate that. And I think in time, most people can come to terms with it and realize this is not my fault. This is something that happens and you find a place to to move forward with that and, and to separate it from the human sort of side of grief. And the other side is stigma which unfortunately still persists. And people think, oh, well, we're much more um, open to talking about mental health and talking about suicide. And that's true. And that's very welcome. But there is also self-stigma. And the self-stigma is something that people might not realise, that people impacted by suicide, if you put it in very simple terms, if somebody asks, you know, oh, how did your loved one die? There's sometimes a very slight pause or an intake because people feel, well, if I say suicide, am I lessening the person that died? Are they lesser than in the eyes of the person who asked the question? I mean, I had experience of it, you know, with um, another bereaved father at a, at a um, remembrance event for children who had died. It wasn't specific to suicide. And he shared his story about his little girl who had died from cancer. And I listened and him, you know, we obviously, you know, had great empathy and sympathy for him. And then he asked me about my child. And when I explained that she had died by suicide, I could see he he automatically took a step back, you know, and it was just a reflex from him. And the subject and the conversation closed and he went his own way. And that happens time and again for people bereaved, And I think it, doesn't come from badness it's not from people with malintent I think it's some people are just it's a shock they don't expect to hear it and they really don't know how to navigate the conversation so they shut it down but they don't realize that what they're doing is they are adding to that person's pain and sense of being different and lesser than because we know the manner in which somebody dies is not the person that's just the manner in which they died So the person's life is what it's all about, not the manner of how they died. So I think that conversation around bereavement and around talking about grief and using the the right terminology around it, like died by suicide instead of committed suicide, been able to talk about, you know, how are you doing, you know, and, and allow the person to be exactly as they are in that conversation, tears and all, Because you're doing no damage, but you're giving them a great gift if you give them that little bit of space just to say how they really are. Because you could have connected with that dad because you'd both
1: lost a child. You had that in, in common. You had that grief in common. The how wasn't the important part necessarily. And you do hear that, though. You hear of people who go through great tragic loss and people cross to the other side of the street rather than face them because we panic. It's sort of human nature. We panic, think we'll say the wrong thing. But I mean, I called you ahead of today's interview to say, is it okay that we talk about Millie? Because I'd have respect for your story in that way. But I'd imagine, obviously, you know, we'll talk about the charity now. You've set this up and, and that's something you want to do and talk about. But everyone's going to be individual. But I'm sure you want to talk about her. You want to talk
2: about the loss. You want to talk about the experience rather than hide it away. Well, of course, but anybody who's lost a loved one wants to talk about them. It's no different. You know, You know, everybody loves when you hear your loved one's name been said. That's a gift because it makes them seem alive. You're bringing them into the conversation. So when that shut down and almost every family, bar none, have instances where the person who's died is no longer spoken about. And I think particularly when it comes to a trauma like a suicide, that unfortunately is very true. So you're at the family gathering and, you know, there's chat and conversation that that person may not even been, you know, you raise a glass to people who are no longer with us. You know, a few of us have those, those lovely customs. But unfortunately, when it comes to it, that, that doesn't tend to happen. There's still that veil drawn over it. And again, you know, I would very much open the conversation and say, and don't forget, we're also going to talk about, you know, Millie and, you know, to make it a conversation about love and light and the living as opposed to about the death. And you just have to open the door for people sometimes and be a little bit brave and allow them then to s- relax into the conversation. It's hard, you know, but I think it's a, it's like a little bit of education each way because There's nothing more hurtful than feeling that that person has been shut out from memory. And I'm sure it's not true in reality. Of course, they still love her and think about her. But the best thing to do is to talk about it.
1: OK, Fiona, thank you so much for speaking so honestly and sharing your story with us. We will take a quick break and when we come back, we'll get into the charity hug, why you set it up and what it stands for. Alive and
0: kicking on
1: News Talk. You're welcome back to Alive and Kicking where I'm joined in studio by Fiona Toomey who set up HUG which stands for Healing Untold Grief Groups following the death of her 11 year old daughter Millie in 2016 and before the break we were talking about that and we are going to continue talking about support after suicide and I will be giving out support numbers at the end of the discussion but there is a trigger warning about that discussion so if it isn't safe for you to continue listening now is the time for you to turn the radio down but Fiona tell me a little bit about setting up HUG.
2: I think it came very soon after Millie died And it wasn't so much I'm going to set up a charity because that was the last thing I wanted to do, like absolutely the last thing I wanted to do. But I knew that I wanted to do something like within the suicide prevention space. There was a lot happening. So I said, this is not an area I'm going to go into, but I'm going to see where is my place and where is the place for Millie's voice and what's happened. And then because I was so desperate to meet other people who had been impacted by suicide, and realising there was this gap where that conversation wasn't enabled. Where can I go to have that conversation? Where would I find these people? Uh, I found that really difficult uh, because that's what I needed. I wasn't looking for a counsellor. I wasn't looking for you know, mental health you know assistance. I was looking for human connection. I wanted to see living proof that people have survived this type of loss. And I wanted to share my experience with them and them with me because I knew that it would be enabled. Nobody be shutting it down and moving it on. So I sought it out. Uh, I found it in the Midlands, in a group in the Midlands for a very short period of time. There was a group there and I used to drive up and down from Dublin. But that was tough going because you're going to sort of bury your soul and then you're driving back home again. So it wasn't very practical. So I said, "Okay, we need to do this. So with another lady who herself had been impacted by suicide many years previously, we went about setting up a group in Dublin. And really, very quickly, we saw that this was really wanted and needed. And people came, you know, every week and we said, OK, we've got something here and we need to put structure on it and we need to build it and we need to see what is it going to be. And it turned into HUG very quickly, which was going to be a space for support for people bereaved by suicide but most importantly led by people with the lived experience who then you know were further down the line and I suppose it's a beacon of hope because that's what you need you need to be told you can survive this and not only survive this you will eventually go on to have a life with love and laughter while still carrying your grief not going to get smaller but you're going to grow around it And to give that hope to somebody is enormous because people come in and they say, I don't think I can, I don't think I can survive this. This is too big. It's too much. And I certainly felt like that at times. It's too heavy a burden. It's crushing. But if you see people who say, I've been there, I'm still here, and I'm not just existing, I'm living. And that's what Hugs All About, hope and healing after suicide.
1: And how much a part of the healing process is that peer support, but also for the volunteers or you and your other founder giving back? And it's too glib to say turning a negative into a positive, but to channel that energy into something like that. How how healing can that be?
2: Well, that's something we really wanted to find out, not just from, you know, feedback from people but we wanted to find it out scientifically. So the National Suicide Research Foundation down in Cork asked if they could do a study on the groups uh, and do it. uh, So we wanted to get some qualitative as well as quantitative information to see, well, does attending a peer support group actually make a difference to your grief? So we said our doors are wide open because if it doesn't, we're kind of wasting our time here and we'll move on. So we, we really wanted to find out so they came and they um, they worked with the the groups and the volunteers over a period of a year and they published uh, two papers uh, which came out last year to show that attending a peer support group with HUG lowers traumatic grief, improves coping skills. So we were delighted. You know, it shows that it does work. It does help. And we're not saying that peer support is the answer for everybody, but it certainly one of the answers. It certainly helps some people. And for us, that meant we're doing things right. We've got some scientific proof. We've got evidence, which was really important because everything we do is evidence-based. Everything we do. So that meant that we then could publish that and say to people, you're coming to a safe place. You're coming to a place where our volunteers are trained and supported. You'll be supported. And this is something that will definitely benefit you going forward. And it could be done in conjunction with counselling or any other form of supports that people want. HUG is not just a place for peer support. It's also a place for information because I craved that certainly after Millie died. I wanted to find out why do people die by suicide? You're going through all of your questions, the why. And I think, as we always say, keep asking until you run out of why. And you will run out of why eventually. But you need to be given the information and it needs to be in one place.
1: And you are constantly looking for volunteers and, and, and people to come on board. And as you say, it, it gives back so much. But these are people at a very vulnerable time. So you mentioned that they are
2: supported and, and trained throughout. They are. I mean, we our aim is to have a hug group within 40 minutes of where somebody lives anywhere in the country. It's a big ambition. We have 16 groups at the moment. They all offer either in a hybrid environment so people can attend in person or online. We also have online only groups and we want to continue to grow that. But it takes time. We're not looking for, you know, sort of mass expansion overnight. This is something we do carefully and systematically. So finding volunteers takes time. And we're very careful about how we do it. So we look for people who have been bereaved a minimum of three years. You know, that's our absolute minimum, because even though you can't put a timeline on grief, you certainly couldn't be asking people who've been bereaved less than three years to start this process. It's It wouldn't be good for them and it wouldn't be good for us. So that's the starting point. So somebody may have been bereaved 20 years, 10 years. It's irrelevant. If They feel it might be right for them. We invite them come along and chat to us. There's an interview process and that's really just a chat to find out where they're at and you know what how they've coped, you know, what sort of help have they had and really find out are they think they're emotionally in the right place for this. Because it is emotional work. There's no getting around it. But we do know that there is what's called post traumatic growth, which happens to a lot of people after a trauma, not just suicide. And again, there's scientific proof to underpin this. And we know it from the people who volunteer with us. They get so much because they're not only guiding people along the way. They know that their own trauma has in and of itself provided something really positive and really beneficial to other people. And we get that time and time. Our volunteers are amazing people, absolutely amazing people. And we're constantly looking for more volunteers so that we can extend and also so that we can Make sure that the volunteers can step away when they need to, you know, or come back in. We want to give them that space.
1: And how does it work then? Is it in person
2: groups, online? What is sort of expected? Well, uh, unlike other organisations, we have always been uh, mobile and uh, we've used a lot of technology. So when the pandemic pandemic hit, we were very early adopters of Zoom technology And we found people said it'll never work. You couldn't possibly provide bereavement support groups, you know, in the virtual world. And actually the opposite happened. Uh, People were really grateful of it because grief is isolating in and of itself. So if you provide somebody with an option to come into a virtual room and meet other people, very quickly they forget it's virtual and it's just a conversation. So we built on that and we looked around for other technology And we came across the OWL technology, which allows us to have people in person and online, which has been wonderful. It's a very immersive experience. And again, it took us a couple of years and we got grants and we were very grateful to be able to do this. So now, not only does it mean that we can reach more people, it means that people can have either experience. And it depends on where they're at.
1: Well, Fiona, I am so, so grateful for this illuminating and informing conversation that we have had here today. If people want to find out more, you can go to hug.ie. That's H-U-G-G dot I-E. And if you are affected By any of the issues raised, you can contact Chiline on one That is a free phone number or text support to 50101. Pieta House can be contacted on one That is also free. And the Samaritans are on 116-123, also a free number. You can text 087-260-9090 or email joe. At Samaritans.org. Again, Fiona Toomey, thank you so much for coming on. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer, Aoife Breen, and Hugo de Silva Scott, was on sound. And thanks as ever to you for listening. I will see you next week.
2: Alive
0: and Kicking on News Talk.